0: very warm welcome to you all and um many many familiar faces but but welcome to our first virtual zebra campfire event and um, which is great we've we've been keeping the home fires burning uh, with the zebra talk podcast and also uh, with our social media activity but i think we've all felt and i know we've had some feedback from many of our community members that uh, it's been a real shame not having the the actual um, in-person opportunities to talk and, and share experiences and although we can't do that fully right now we thought it was about time we cracked on and got some events back up and running so i um, really really pleased to be able to do that. I'll, I'll introduce our key contributors in a moment but I just wanted to say a couple of things to, for those of you who are not regular Zebra um, event attendees or familiar with the project. Um, zebra is about being a zebra project is about being an Africa for good business and, and, a, and a community more importantly that helps leaders look up and look out um, and uh, learn from each other and help each other adapt to the rapidly changing landscape the, from a business perspective and also from a, a society perspective. And I think the, the last 12 months has been a pretty humbling experience for many of us, but, but also quite a liberating one. Um, And perhaps we'll come back to those threads during our conversations. But what the last 12 months has done is is show us just how dynamic that business and societal landscape is, but also just how dynamic our responses have been to it, a real sense of positivity around that. So this this is an opportunity to talk about our responses as much as as the challenges that that have been posed. And... I looked back to, to when we launched the Zebra Project, so 20, 2018, which does feel like a lifetime ago, even though the number wasn't that long ago, but 2018 was when we, we kicked the Zebra Project off. And the then CEO of the Royal Society um, and our keynote speaker, Matthew Taylor, um, said this. He said, the future could be one in which the human race uh, achieves a step change in our well-being, in our fulfilment uh, and in our potential for growth. And he went on to say, don't let anyone tell you that it's algorithms that will determine the path that we take. And it should be, it must be us that determines our path. And I, and I think now is a really positive moment to be looking at, at that question. You know, How do we determine our path and, and who determines our path? And that, that resonates really, really well. So I take that sentiment from Matthew Taylor into the, into the conversation that we're going to have this afternoon. Um, and I think it's an, it's an opportunity, it's a beacon, really, around which we can gather our, our thinking and our activity um, to evolve and develop as individuals and as organisations. So that's the background. Our key contributors today, and I'll ask them to, to wave, hopefully many of you are on gallery view, so you can see as many people as, as possible. But first up, um, we've got Celia Hannon, who is the Director of Discovery at Nesta which is, of course, a fantastic job title, but I'm sure everyone that introduces Celia says that, but it, it generally is. Um, but Nestor as an organisation is about innovation for social good, um, and it's about designing and, and testing solutions to some of society's bigger problems. So in terms of, a, of an organisational purpose that's aligned with what Zebra is all about, um, Nestor and, and Celia's work is absolutely bang on. So welcome, Celia. We then have um, Nancy Now, Nancy is the Executive Director of a wonderful organisation called What Works Wellbeing, which I have to pronounce very carefully. And uh, we'll learn a bit more about what What Works Wellbeing works on as we go through today and listen to what um, Nancy has to, has to explain to us. But essentially, What Works Wellbeing is, is about creating a learning infrastructure for wellbeing. And it's about, I think I've been struck in our conversations about taking an evidence-based approach to wellbeing initiatives, which I think is absolutely fantastic. We've then got Kevin Pojasek, who is the uh, president and CEO, waving there, um, of Anara Bio, uh, which is a life sciences company focused on developing new um, cancer therapies. Uh, and Kevin's uh, a recent convertee to the Zebra Projects, and uh, very grateful to have Kevin on board um, and the work that his organization is doing, but also... The, the, the thoughts that Kevin has about the way businesses should run, I think, are, are fascinating, and I'm looking to sharing those. And then we have our regular contributor, John Nell. And um, so John's been with the the project um, since since day one, and he's uh, founder of Culture uh, Counts, and is also um, the person that keeps us straight on our thought leadership, uh, bringing his experience of, broad experience of working in the world of thinking in a rigorous way to, to some of the work that we do. So John, good to have you here. John will be sweeping up behind me, hopefully. So that's enough of introductions. Very much a conversation today. I mean, we, we it's not a webinar, it's not presentations. The, the nature of these events is, is discussion. You know, we've got a rough map of how we might run a conversation, but really we want to follow the energy in the room and the energy between our key contributors and you, and I'm very keen that, that that you as the broader audience do have an opportunity to contribute. So we will have a chat room going. So if anybody wants to contribute through the chat or pose any questions, Catherine and John in particular will be keeping an eye on that. And we'll, we'll try our best to, to bring that in. And, and depending on how things go, I may also pose some questions to everyone. And It would be wonderful to have your thoughts and contribution. Um, and it will give give us all a rest as key contributors. So that's the, that's the idea for the day or um, well, the, the next hour. I, I thought. I'd, I'd kick off by looking at the sort of big picture question of where are we right now? You know, we have this sense that we're making progress and that the world is unlocking or evolving or whatever, however you might want to look at it. But where are we actually in, in, in our thinking and in our process? And I thought a really interesting way to look at this would be to say, has the last 12 months given us the ability to, to imagine a positive future in, a, in, in, in an enhanced way? Or has it eclipsed our ability to imagine that positive future? You know, where, where do we sit? And I was going to come to to Kevin to get his initial thoughts on that. Kevin.
1: Well, thanks, Matt. And it's an absolute pleasure to join um, and and sort of kick off uh, uh, participation in the Zebra Project formally. So, so thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I think this is a, a great place to start. I, I mean, for me, I, I think it has to be. Enhanced, I mean, just from, from, I think, the positivity that we probably all share about how we need to create the future together. Um, I, I think that you know, what we've all gone through has certainly, at least for me, reinforced or, or maybe brought to the fore probably in a way that I ha- hadn't been before, the fragility of our just normal day-to-day existence, right? So there's all sorts of journeys I've gone on, our company's gone on, I'm sure we've all gone on over the last year that's been driven by that. And you know, and and I think on the positive side, so as a scientist and someone who leads a um, a science organization focused on developing new mechanisms, new medicines, you know, I think we can all be um, pleased and and impressed by the ability to go from you know identifying the virus in January of 2020 to rolling out multiple vaccines globally um, in in less than 12 months. I mean, that is just an unbelievable. Achievement um, really, the, the, the you know, the on a scale we haven't seen before in medicine. And I think there's a lot of lessons in there. I think the this, 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 the power of science and medicine is is at the forefront. I think there's also a, a message around focus. A lot of these companies literally dropped everything else they were doing to focus on this and delivered. And I think in the age of distraction, there's a lot of good messages in there. And then I guess you know the other positive themes I see really. You know some of the trends around the environment. So with COP26 coming up and Mark Carney's wreath lectures and all the work he's doing uh, in preparation for that, um, you know, obviously the impact that that the potential that that has is 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 positive. And I hope I hope that's translated. Um, I think the Biden administration in the U.S. has really changed the tone. But I mean, which wasn't hard to do by just subtraction but has actually now really started to focus on, you know, the environment, um, uh, equality and injustice, um, guns, um, and, and hopefully we'll make some impact there. Um, and then I think, you know, it just in the, some other broader themes that I've been interested in is, is, um, there's a great group called the center for humane technology led by Tristan Harris, who's, who's really getting at the forefront of how do we, um, think about regulating in our own lives, social media and algorithms and bringing back humanity into um, our households, our interactions. um, Some really interesting stuff there. Um, So I I mean, that's the positive, right? I mean, I think the backdrop hasn't changed. And, and, you know, I think we're all aware of that, right? I mean, I, I think that there's still a very strong us and them a a very much a, you know, zero sum game across politics. And, you know, we see that with Brexit, we see in the US, I mean, that's all still there. But I think there is a lot of hope and positivity to take from from the last few years. And I think, you know, the collective issue we're all going to face is how do we deal with this at a societal level at, you know, through interactions like this, you know, outside of our day to day existence to, to try to convert some of this positive belief into reality. So, anyway, a few thoughts to to start with.
0: No, I I, th- I think they're great great thoughts, Kevin. And you know, it's interesting that you started with science because I think the the brand of science has 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 had a lot of value added to it over the last twelve months, and and have been some remarkable, um, remarkable stories there. And and you know, no doubt the investment will continue to follow into into science and R and D, which is, um, you know, for, in many respects, a positive thing. You know, I think that there's a contrary view, which is, however good the sciences are. Uh, as individuals or organizations or institutions um we've managed to trip over our shoelaces quite a bit in actually making sure that that science does the does the good that it that it could but that's a that's a political area that probably i don't, I don't want to go into but uh, but i but i do think there's a you know, there's a broader there's a broader question about you know in, in response to all of those challenges and, and and our abilities to have to rely on science to solve them have we lost some of our sort of sense of agency as individuals or organizations and um yeah, I'm interested what our key contributors think about that topic of agency
2: uh so thank you uh also for inviting me to join I've heard lots of great things about your community so it's lovely to be here um I think from my point of view and Lester, I suppose we we think that imagining alternative futures is is kind of like a muscle it's something that we can all do with permission and with practice and in terms of this moment we've just come through or are still in on the one hand we've been given this space and permission to think about how the world could be different which is very exciting we've seen all these initiatives from artists and thinkers and campaigners who are all kind of seizing this moment and things which would have seemed absolutely impossible and from some people's perspective maybe not desirable have have become possible overnight so you know we've re- re-nationalized the railways essentially we've introduced a form of universal basic income we've um housed the homeless temporarily you know these things seem like they would would have been completely impossible so that that i think is is quite fascinating that we're capable of that at such a scale. a On the other hand, of course, um, our worlds have shrunk and we're living in a state of perpetual uncertainty. And we know actually, you know, the data supports this, that those types of conditions actually lead people to feel more fatalistic and less able to exert agency and shape their world. Um, And actually the the trends show over time that we have become less optimistic about the future and that we think our children will have a, a poorer quality of life than we will um and that we as individuals and it's particularly high in the uk don't don't feel that we personally can affect the future so that is is quite troubling and i think while we think at a collective level that we are talking about the future constantly in literature and fiction and films often that's quite a dystopian vision and it's quite a different type of muscles I was saying to think about positive visions about the future and it's even more challenging after a period of crisis when you know fatigue sets in but you know to go back to the point I started with the fact that the art of the possible has been shown to us I think is is tremendously exciting.
0: And that that sense of the balance between the art of the possible and 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 the, the sort of fatalistic sense that we haven't got um perhaps the agency that we thought we had that we've been kidding ourselves from a from a well-being point of view nancy i mean do you, do you get the sense that you know, if, you, if you do you get the sense that the well-being situation is as, is as bad as you would believe in the media i mean if you if whatever you read or listen to it give you the sense that we're all basically teetering on the edge of some sort of um, meltdown that you know i i'm i'm not seeing that in the real world but that's definitely the narrative that that you you get a sense of where where are we now in terms of well-being
3: yeah it's a great question because actually the data is doing different things to reality so what we saw is that people did have a roller coaster year um and there has been ups and downs but it hasn't been equally up and down so some people have done really quite well um and adapted brilliantly and actually 60 percent of the population have actually been in workplaces and not been working at home in this virtual world. And so um, we've seen a whole range of different things. So one is the big things we've seen up and down. What we have seen and what I've been surprised by is a couple of things. So one is that actually mental health and loneliness as on the whole did not get bad or not as bad as we thought it would be. But those who already had poor mental health or already lonely experienced worse, um, experienced those more, more strongly so what we can I think there's a couple of things I want to say in response to that is that one is that people and organizations are incredibly adaptable which gives me huge hope um, we're incredibly resilient and it's well-being that gives that resilience and sustains that over time so are we uh, are we getting things done are we enjoying it are we learning and are we have ever got a purpose towards it but um what we also see is that those those the distribution is really varied so while some people will have been accruing massive savings, those whose savings have been affected have increased massive, a third higher anxiety than those others. Those, and so that distribution is really quite important. And when you take that to the workplace context, you need to know your people. What age are they? Are they getting on the housing ladder? Are they different ages? Um, or where are they geographically? Have they got parents in, in India, for example, or w- what's going on for them? And how do the wellbeing drivers play out in that context? And because we've got a new future, we have to, evidence always looks backwards, right? So we have to look at what the principles of well-being are and help create them. And what I think it has done is bring this conversation about how we're feeling, how we're doing physically and mentally, but also how we're doing socially into the forefront. And we're suddenly in people's lives in a way we weren't before. But... um, I think everyone's been up and down is the short answer it's been different for different people and we're not through this yet is my is my main one but I think certainly this agency and ability to take action is absolutely essential for hope and optimism in the future and it's very different to the other things that drive well-being which are having a positive sense of self and good social connections
0: right and I I think you know one of the one of the interesting themes that that came out of in fact, both both the podcasts that we did on, on mental health and wellbeing, and I, I can see Dennis and Simon on my screen, but one of the things that came out of that was actually how important the physical place at work and the, and the physical community interaction in the workplace was in, in helping people create a, create a, a sort of sense of, of, of a support infrastructure around them and give them a sense of purpose and positivity about, about the work they were doing, particularly if they had a sort of predisposition to, to mental health challenges. So I think there's been a real practical challenge around supporting some of that. And is that, or well, perhaps perhaps I'll invite Nancy, Dennis or Simon to comment on that. But is that is that something that, we've, that has made the problem more acute in, for, for individuals, but perhaps not at a generic level?
3: So um, I think we've suddenly become much more aware of things that we didn't, we just sort of did automatically. And it's that's a really good opportunity to question those things and, and question things we want to keep and that we don't. And actually where... And lots of teams have been working remotely in different ways for a long, long time. And there's really good ways of doing that. We sort of switched to an introvert world overnight. And there's some things that we should try and keep with that, particularly the inclusiveness that you can get from online events. We can get people from all over the world. Um, I think the big thing we saw in the data was a big drop in happiness, which is positive mood. Um, and the ability, the difficulty in not being able to plan ahead added to that. Um, and so I think what we'll see is an emphasis on happiness and i think we'll see that i think in in the literature and in music we'll see this focus on slightly happier world which i hope will help us envisage a better future
0: great dennis i can see you've come off mute. You're very welcome to contribute uh,
4: no I, I i i i would beware drawing sweeping generalizations about the effect of the pandemic on mental health um ever since it's become okay to talk about mental health in the western world a huge exaggeration goes on, like the figure of one in four of us is suffering from mental ill health, which is simply not true. Um, which is why, and you can't have a bunch of politicians together discussing the military uh, without talking about the, the mental health problems of the military. And actually, all the evidence which has been brilliantly collected by Simon Wesley at uh, Kings is our military, if anything, has less mental health problems um, than the rest of the population in the sharp contrast. So, so I. I, I, I are there going to be mental health consequences from the pandemic? Yep. And um, do we need to be very cautious not to swallow media hype, slash exaggerate and um, uh, create unnecessary expenditures? Also, yes.
0: No, absolutely. I, I think that the, the broader point about it's a, it's a dangerous time to generalize is, is, a, is an interesting one across a number of the themes. Because you know, I think it, there is there is a desire to generalise because we're looking for certainty in a period of ambiguity, you know. But actually, if if nothing else, the last twelve months has shown how it, how individual our experience of the same experience has been, um, and I, you know, perhaps that's something we need to we need to take as a as a general, um, as a, you know, as a general thread of the way we approach problems going forward. So so we're. Yeah, we're, we're, the intention of, of today is, is, to, is to think about bravery and imagination and, and, and to look forward. I, I guess uh, perhaps this is, a, perhaps this is a, good, a good one for Celia to comment on because of your, your role is all about the future. But do we, do we feel, given where we are, that now is the right time to, to be brave and imaginative and, and try and envision different futures? Or, or should we overcome that urge and, and live with ambiguity a little bit longer?
2: That's a big question, isn't it? I'm I'm reminded of a quote from Zadie Smith in relation to what we've just lived for. And she she talks about the pandemic as a global humbling. And I think that's, that's quite interesting, that sense of being face to face with your weaknesses as a society and perhaps your lack of preparedness or just the fundamental nature of uncertainty within which we live and I think you know people who work in the field of futures often stress this idea of interconnectedness and complexity and events like a pandemic which you know endlessly feature in uh, future scenarios but for many people this was one of the first times that they have been brought face to face with what uncertainty really looks like and, and what the consequences are f- of that at the personal level and at the organisational level so there's something about having the rug pulled from under us and 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 that unser- that sense of certainty although it's illusory <laughs> in the main often being taken away from us which as I was saying earlier does create a, a question about you know how do we really want to live what do we value um, and that is incredibly exciting at the same time and I'm sure you We've talked about uh, Brene Brown's work uh, before, but at the same time, it, it's, it's quite it's quite a vulnerable space to sketch a possible future, and it requires a lot of psych- psychological safety and a sense of collective endeavor, and it's quite hard to to build that right now while while we're still raw. So I would say that there is there is space now for dialogue and for debate, um, but given the degree of change fatigue that people are experiencing, we'll probably need to proceed with a degree of caution yeah that, that's that's interesting and I you know I was, I, as you were saying I was
0: thinking um particularly about Kevin in, a, in, a, in an organizational leadership role is it's not a comfortable place necessarily um, i have show my hand there it's not a comfortable place necessarily to um show vulnerability to to it to, to to be comfortable with ambiguity when you know actually is, you know, are, are our followers in a position to cope with that are we as leaders do we have the skills to, to cope with leading through ambiguity? So I was wondering from a leadership perspective, Kevin, you know what you what your on the ground experience of that challenge has been.
1: Yeah, no, it's great. And and so great, absolutely great comments, I think both with Brene's work and the concept of psychological safety and how do you bring that into a workplace and what are the benefits of that? And there's lots of literature around that. I mean, it's interesting, right? It's sort of, you know, not to always bring this back to science, but, but as a science organization, right, we... we ambiguity is just part of our DNA. And it's always about how, how do you come up with hypotheses, run experiments, and then iterate and sense and respond. And so we do that for a living. And I think, um, so that's just continued throughout. But I think what this experience has brought forward is a, is a way to integrate that into then you know, how we interact as an organization at a human level. And I think what's amazing to me at times is that, you know, we have a brilliant scientist, but and, and who, who love ambiguity and deal with it day to day as they're sitting at the bench, but struggle in other aspects of their life and struggle is how we interact as an organization. And so we've done a lot of work around, you know, how we turn up, how we interact, what our culture, what we aspire our culture to be, autonomy. We talk a lot about Brene's work, a lot about psychological safety. And I think one of the things I've learned over the last year is we've invested in this and doing it Always doing this remotely is hard, right? I mean, this is always high touch. You want to be in the room and a lot of the workshop style tactics I'm sure that we've used, we've all used before, you have to reinvent via Zoom. And we've tried to do that and we've had some successes and some failures and we've learned and tried to iterate. But I think what we tried to bring to the fore is there really is no separation between the ambiguity in the outside world, ambiguity in our personal lives, ambiguity of the work we do together and how we interact. And I think there has to be a lean in and embracing of that. And I think what's been impactful for me is the people who they've sort of seen that. Some people just it's a foreign concept, right? I mean, it's just I do science and then there's everything else, but others have clicked. And I think it's, it's those people who I have seen and, and I think we've seen as an organization an improvement in their well-being, and then they become sort of owners of the culture and some of the drive that we have within the organization. And look, I, you know, I, from my perspective, it's leadership is all about service to others. What gets me out of the bed in the morning is the ability to to help ev- anybody and everybody on my team thrive and be successful. And and I think that's as defined, anybody can do that, right? And so I think that's been the other thing we've tried to instill through this, such that people should experiment and try and fail and will help and support. And, you know, I do it every day. So, you know, there's mistakes abound. So I think that's really helped. And I think it, so it, 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 it just connecting back to the well-being piece, I think having conversations about how we work, trying to draw parallels to what's going on in the outside world, the work itself, and then how we can all get better together has really helped, I think, the overall well-being. It certainly helped mine I mean, I just the 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 last comment I'll make here. I mean, I read something last week about this concept of languishing, which really resonated with me. Right, I'm not depressed, but I'm not thriving. I'm somewhere in between, and they described it as like a foggy windscreen, and I'm like, yeah, that's a lot of what the last year has been. And I think obviously naming it helps me then to say, okay, it's a thing, and I can do it. I can talk about it, and then two, you know, you could start to move through it. So anyway, just connecting a few threads there, but. We love ambiguity.
0: I think that's. I mean, it's really interesting listening to you talking about it's. Yeah, fundamentally, leadership is about service. Is is something I would I would expect to hear in the zebra community, but it's not necessarily a wider, a wider view. I think there are. You know, there's a there's an interesting debate about the proportion of leaders who do who do think that. Uh, but also looking at Sally Woodward have made a comment in the in the chat about which I interpreted about trying to humanise our understanding of this ra- rather than gather data. And I think good, nodding there, Sally. I think that's which which I think is important. And you know, maybe this is one for Nancy to, to, to comment on. But I think there's a one of the things that that I think we can take forward is this sense of sort of humanity and having, you know, we've looked at individual circumstances, individual responses. You know, many organizations set their priorities for the pandemic, and the first priority was protect protecting their workforce. You know, it was it was a physical risk, it was a it was about protecting individuals and humans and you know I wonder how much that humanizing of leadership Nancy will will feed into organizations having greater priority on well-being um but also individuals feeling that they can be individuals within our organizations
3: we've certainly just brought the whole of work into our home life and vice versa um in a way that we've never seen before I think um uh, there's a challenge there's a couple of things here that we're picking up so one is that is is it just the data or we need to go beyond that you do need the data because you do need to check in on is it just noise or or, or what actually is happening so you need both one of the things we've seen over the last 10 years is a shift to realizing that well-being matters in an organization um, that we ought to do something beyond individuals and um, now you've got to the stage where okay yeah it matters what do I do and I think the the, the what do I do question hasn't been answered very well yet because the science needs to rapidly scale up. And that's the sort of things that Wellcome Trust have prioritised mental health in the workplace, particularly, and have put a £200 million investment in over five years. That's how much work we need to do on this to get an answer. And, I, and we need the numbers to do that. So it's great that it's fashionable, really, really great. I mean, we do need to know does it make a difference? How do we know it makes a difference? I think there is a responsibility here of leadership or particularly bigger organisations and multinational organisations to contribute to that knowledge of actually what does make a difference in which workplaces and how. And we can do that in a more systematic way. So we've got, I would say, an increasing number of organisations now doing a wellbeing strategy. And that's where you see performance and wellbeing improvements coming together where you integrate it across the organisation. And we're also starting to see the what I would call an I, we, us model, where you've got the individual initiatives that they do work mostly. We can get much smarter about how they do work, but mostly they work. So the things that I can do on my own, the things that work across the team. So that social connection element, the relationships between peers, managers, and um, clients or or customers. And that relational element at work, I think, is happening. Over 25% of people found work as a good coping strategy, right? So we've got this real conundrum where we've got people are happiest at 23 and 68 and miserable while they're working. We've also got this conundrum where we're most miserable at work in the presence of our line managers, but yet work is absolutely essential to our well-being. So the countries that will do well and survive without societal conflict effectively will be those that prioritise employment and good employment from this, particularly from young people. And so we've got a real, I think, conflict here between yes it needs to be human but it also needs to be well organized and thoughtful and we need the science of mental health to catch up including in the workplace where we've got leaders going yeah of course we get it and they want to get on and do it but um i don't think the science is quite there about whether or not they make a difference so you've got people recommending very very big changes to the way we work on a large scale with probably not enough confidence that it will have an effect that you would like to see and so I think we need to have um, a scientific iterative process to this based on what we already know as we go forward yes we need to be human about it and we've got into people's lives in a way that we hadn't thought we would ever do that but people still are wanting that privacy um, how do we get that balance right? How do we get the workplace right? Are we going to force everyone to be at home? And we haven't thought that through. We should do that with as much rigor and robustness as we do any other investment decisions in an organisation.
0: Right, that's another another case for for data and evidence. I, I've only just got over the last time you told me that we were most miserable during our working life and in the presence of our line managers. So thanks for repeating that. It's absolutely excellently. Great. I mean, ultimately, the, it's, it feels that this this part of the conversation comes back to leadership and our and our ability to have leaders who are capable of adaptation and change and, and and dealing with ambiguity. I, I, Celia, you're you know you're you're working with people that are looking at the future for a for a living. You know, it's a it's about future scenarios. What's what's your perspective on that leadership point?
2: Well, I th- I think there's been a fascinating dialogue about leadership during this whole period. And um, there's been a particular focus on whether female leaders have weathered the storm better. Um, And I think that's that's quite a um, a vexed question. And there might be a bit of attribution error there. But one of the interesting things is that uh, countries where perhaps are more likely to elect female leaders tend to have done a bit better and where there are uh, where there's quite a strong trust relationship between the um citizenship and citizens and leadership or you know public institutions and so that I find really fascinating because I think that trust the strength of those trust bonds are so critical for all sorts of crises that we're facing in the next uh, few decades so on climate and the type of action that we'll need to be taken is very much a partnership between business and government and society, you know, how we respond to the role of tech in our lives. All of these questions demand huge trust and it's not always there. And divisive leadership, um, countries with kind of strongman leaders um, haven't tended to, to fare as well. Um, so I think in terms of the the qualities which make for good leadership in this highly volatile, highly uncertain kind of space which we are in which we've always been in but which has I think become clearer to is one of the most important things I think is transparency so people will will tolerate failure often if they understand why decisions were taken and that was done in in people's best interests. And um, I think that's really important for leaders of organisations because actually it's not about always knowing the answer, but it's about being clear about the principles and criteria under which decision was taken. And the other thing that we've seen, I think, really um, kind of exaggerated in the current moment is our insistence that leaders walk the talk. Um, So where there's been deviation, say, from kind of uh, the the public health guidance that was out there, then, you know, there's a lot of anger if leaders don't kind of follow through in their own personal behaviour and they're not accountable. Um, And I think that that's also, you know, as applicable at the organisational level. And the final thing, just from a specifically kind of future's point of view, is, you know, we're very interested in the way that. Uh, organizations can decentralize their sensing capacity, which sounds very jargon heavy, but by which I mean their ability to kind of listen and tap into what's happening externally to pick up signals and understand what change means. Now, there's no way a single individual can do that well for an organization. It's got to be something that's done across across the organization at the edges as well. So, um, you know, it's going to be more and more important that organizations find ways of empowering their employees to do that sensing of change, and then making sense of what it means for the organisation.
0: Right, that, that's that's interesting, and I think there's we've had a number of side conversations in the Zebra community about you know actually what if you've if you haven't got certainty, and if the existing leadership structures that delivered clarity of objective kpis constant deliverable and performance assessment if those have gone in somewhat some or all respects from an organization what do you actually replace them with you know there's an interesting debate around you know the role of storytelling the role of you know al- allowing is sort of in internal competitions to identify what priorities exist within an organization So sort of just taking different decentralized approaches to allowing organizations to drive themselves drive themselves forward one of the one of the debates i've got going on in my head is when you're faced with with uncertainty there is a there's a risk that you become like a magpie and sh- chase after the next shiny thing that you can find because that gives you something to focus on and it gives you some certainty but i wonder whether we should be actually talking about not what our priorities are in the future but actually what we should deprioritize. you know what have we learned about things to deprioritize? and i'm wondering if any of our Key contributors, or anyone that wants to wave their hand at me that I can see on the screen or type in the chat room, has got a view on on that. What should we let go of?
3: For me, the the, the insistence that somebody needs to be there in person has been revelatory. It's been massively inclusive, and it's. I mean, I don't know how we spent all that time travelling and all that time insisting on that I go to Canada for three days for a ten minute for an hour seminar. When I've got two small children at home, just uh, changed the world. So, and it's allowed us colleagues across to work properly across the country from Sheffield and Darlington, Belfast, all over, in a way that we hadn't been able to before. So, I think it can be very inclusive and get us doing stuff at a much better pace that makes a difference.
0: Yeah, we, you know, we've sort of collectively just just let go around so many different agendas. It's actually more. Powerful and potentially more damaging if you reconnect with those and try and go back to where you were before than it is just having let go. Sean, did I see that you had your hand up? Yes, you have. Sean, Taylor.
4: Yeah, I I think Celia's comments were particularly interesting. Good afternoon. This This is a great debate. There's a lot of debate around the leadership space at the moment. I just put into the chat, we have seen the largest turnover of FTSE 250 CEOs in history in the last year. And that is because there's been this massive return to servant leadership. What does that mean? Well, that means a very interesting study was done by the Center for Army Leadership, and Matt, I know your interest in aviation, et cetera, that was combined um, where all the different egos and silos, they let their egos go, and they combined to produce a response to the pandemic. And those leaders that really thrived were the ones that actually Subjugated their IQs for their EQs and actually just actually engage better, exactly as Celia said. And it doesn't actually matter whether they're a man or a woman, they engage better to understand what were the drivers that would make people achieve that aim. And I think in our industries, you know, legal, finance, insurance, etc., that return is such that CEOs have got to ask themselves some serious questions. You know, and and when you say about letting things go, you know, it's letting things go and actually taking the time to understand what is the cultural motivation behind what's making people work. Exactly. uh, As as the lady said, from uh, what works well-being, you know, I think well-being has got to start from the top as well as being driven from the bottom. And yes, avoiding these three day trips to Canada where you sit there bored out of your mind for an hour. So I think, I think there is a readjustment in the model. And I would say to anyone, if anyone wanted to particularly look at uh, UK leadership uh, during the pandemic, the Centre for Army Leadership has an open source published document where they took people from all across industries and said, what have you as a leader yourself? And people have been refreshingly honest. Thank you, Matt. No, that's good. It's great, great contribution.
0: It, made, made, it reminded me of something. Um, when I first got into a leadership role, I—I I was, uh, I'm sure I've said this on a podcast, so I'll bore you all, but I—I I, I said I was sort of angsting about what my role was. You know, what is the role of a CEO or a board member? And um, and uh, in fact, it was a it was a biotech chief exec who I was chatting to about this, and and he said, well, whatever you do, don't get yourself a role and a job description. Just be, just be in the organisation. And I, I think there's a great sense that that's become. A valuable contribution right now is being present. It's it's listening. It's absorbing. It's steadying. And um and perhaps as in fact, Kathy made a really Kathy present. I think it was made a really interesting comment in the chat. Um, actually, perhaps we shouldn't feel the pressure to define what the priorities are or deprioritize things. We should just be comfortable being in the present and see how it goes. And it's, it's interesting. Back you know back in the real world, we had a board meeting in our own organization yesterday and. There were a number of sort of big decisions that we were forcing ourselves into. And we we sort of came to the conclusion that, you know, perhaps just doing nothing was OK. and Perhaps it just it was too early to call it. Kathy, I
5: was just going to say one more thing on that. Thanks, Matt. When I think you said something like, if we have realised we can't rely on these visions and plans and this kind of future, you know, picture... And then you went on to say something else, which also wasn't something else I had in my head. But I think it's exactly what you've just said there, that what we can rely on is the capability of everyone to be present and be adaptable and to show up. And to me, like, that's so much more valuable than anything that we might imagine about the future. Because as we know (laughs) from the past year, we're living in this ambiguity all of the time but yet we are so capable and adaptable and if we could if we had that what you just described from your board meeting and like really felt it like how powerful is that for everybody
0: yeah I mean I think I I think it's the valid view of whether it be acceptable to my stakeholders is another question but that's yeah that's that I think that that's, that puts your leadership in a different direction. You've got to show leadership to your stakeholders about the decisions you've made. But you know, maybe this is an opportunity for Kevin to come in. But is, you know, as as leaders, do we feel under pressure to resolve things now and deal with ambiguity and create certainty for the future or 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 can we be confident in taking that more? I was gonna say laid back, it's the wrong phrase, but you know what I mean. Laid back approach.
1: So many. Great comments there. So just trying to think about where to start. I mean, so another another thing I heard recently. I was just trying to think about where I had heard it, but but leadership as sort of being defined as living or being, you know, being comfortable with not knowing, right, and just being able to occupy the space and listen and be present and. Um, act when necessary, and, you know. Don't act when 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 necessary. And and you know, look, I think that's really really hard. I mean, some of the biggest pressures I face in my role are the, you know, I, I think that, this has been this comment's been made a couple of times. There's a large part of society that still holds very conventional views of leadership, right? And if 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 you know measures around, you know, why are we electing these traditional White male, you you know, leaders. I I think that Celia was alluding to, which is all about this sort of performance leadership, where you know, it's you're walking around like a peacock, and then you have all these people around you trying to kowtow to you, and the wasted energy behind that is just—it's almost unbelievable in society. Whereas I think if people start to think about leadership not as power over somebody, but power with, power to, power within. And, and B, and, and just, I mean, that's where, you know, I think we all need to get to and, and you know, I, 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 and that's where we sp- I spent a lot of time on that. I spent a lot of time on that with the company. I think some of my hardest conversations are the conflict of that with my, my board and members of my board and, and investors who do hold different views of leadership um, and human behavior and motivations. Um, but you know, that's, I think it's the the question I wrestle with increasingly is how do we, all of us who believe this, bring this out to the rest of the world and try to convince others and and, and instill this in in the rest of humanity. I mean, to me, this is like one of the most essential things to both overcome and in some ways, deprioritize the old way and and then, then start to embed the new way. Um, and I think the force multiplier of that, if we can be successful is, is tremendous, but the, you know, the, the wall in front of us is also tremendous. So,
0: yeah, very, very nice to put. And I, you know, I, I think you're, you're a great example of, I think many CEOs and, and leaders who are, you've got almost two distinct communities that you, you have to satisfy. You've got the, the investor shareholder community and you've got the, 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 workforce, the people that look to you for inspiration and, and reassurance. And, I think you know, lots of anecdotally in my sense is lots of leaders are finding it difficult to speak authentically to the perception that there's two different perspectives there. But actually maybe what we'll come out come out of this period with is a sense that perhaps the perhaps the perspectives aren't so different if if you accept that those other stakeholders are also humans experiencing the same emotions and and, and things that, that that we're talking about today. So perhaps that's an overly optimistic view of the world.
4: I think Matt, what there's a very interesting point there. I think what, what, what everyone has realised, and, and, and we've had this almost microscopic view on leadership from top down and bottom up in the last 15 months, is that some CEOs got there because of their technical ability or because they were particularly good at one strand. Whereas if we look back 25, 30 years, a CEO had to know somebody in HR, had to know somebody in compliance, had to know somebody in the business and would probably know the know the man or the woman sweeping the floor in the battery, right? I think some CEOs, and exactly what Kevin said, have been found they have not been able to be authentic and they've not been able to cope with this uncertainty that's come along because... For the, for the ones who are, you know, not being rude here, some are literally so focused on shareholder return that they've not cared about what's happened down on the factory floor. And, and I really think that, that there is this turn now where the CEOs and leaders have got to be slightly more all-encompassing and, and actually just be a bit kinder. And also, it goes back to the old Roman days, have someone behind them, the consiglieri, whispering in the ear going, you are mortal. And we've seen it with, the, with the, what's happened in the last couple of weeks with some of the collapses in our world, Archegos, Greensill. They didn't have anyone there going, you are mortal. And are you do- is what you're doing, is it right? And that is why, financially, you have seen this explosion of the next gen wanting to do ESG. Because ESG, you're deciding where you're going to invest properly, and what you're going to do, because actually that makes you feel good, but it's also doing it with the right companies. So I just wanted to jump in and say that.
0: That's good. And, and you know, back to your makes me think about your military analogy earlier, where you know, military leaders generally, you know, get moved between roles every six to 12 months to get that breadth of experience before they have the, the leadership role. Celia, I could see that you were Chomping at the bits, I'll bring you
2: in. Well, it's just a very quick point, and then I'll make way for John. Just to kind of... I, I loved what Kathy was saying, what Kevin was saying, and I think there's a very interesting link to be made here, which is, one is that I, I don't think that the opposite of... Um, a directive certain form of leadership is simply not knowing and paralysis. There's a very important kind of middle ground here which is some in people in the futures call it the scenaric stance and that means being aware of multiple different possibilities and being able to adapt in the event that they unfold and so that you know that type of leadership which is able to encompass all of those possibilities is I think what we're talking about and then just a the final point what Kathy was saying about um the, uh, the the type of leadership we need now um margaret hefferman was talking about this who i know is someone that John is interested in and she was sort of saying actually what we need now are leaders who can tell us a story about how we coped and how we responded and then apply those capabilities and those strengths to the next set of challenges and crises that that storytelling um, and rather than the certainty is i think what's needed.
0: That's great, Celia. I, I mean, we've got five minutes left and I, w- I wanted to, to just pick up on a, one thread in our title, which was around humility. And, and I think when we introduced that, that word, we, what we were really thinking about there was the sense with which we've been through a learning experience that has been humbling. And, and I think a key part of that, which, which feeds into the leadership dis- debate, is what is the role of, of mistakes and, 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 and how do we think about learning more generally? And we were we were having an interesting conversation um, yesterday, John and um, Vicky and I about about that and and the extent to which, you know, actually, are we trying to be curious and learn because we're genuinely genuinely curious and want to learn, or are we actually using it as a way to seek affirmation of of what we already think and what we're doing? And I wonder, John, I'm going to come into you there because you've got your mic off and you're in the frame. Yeah, so. I-
6: I just wanted to build on what a few people said. I mean, in the chat, um, Georgie, Rupert, Sean, Tim have all been making comments that I agree with, which is around, actually, this moment has really stripped back everyone in the workplace, and we can see the people that are good at the job and good at leading. It's been pretty unforgiving. So you know this notion that some leaders perhaps understand right from the get-go about why humility is important as a leader? I think some people have had humility thrust upon them during the pandemic. Um, you know, work- workplaces are are, are theatres and they have lighting and they have controllable cast members. And actually for any CEOs, they can put the makeup in on, they can control the environment, they can, they can vet the questions and they can go on that stage and be leaderly. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting about the pandemic is that it's stripped away a lot of those walls that people both individually and as leaders hide behind. So um, Celia spoke very eloquently about how a lot of alibis for change has been stripped away you know, and we've seen what the art of the possible is. And therefore, people have perhaps begun to imagine more uh, sort of future, um, alternative futures. But I think the same thing's happened to leaders. A lot of the walls they used to hide behind have been stripped away. The communication cascade, the fact that we can't we can't be zero carbon in the next three years, or that we can't give everyone a choice to how they work remotely. And I think what's been really interesting about that is how leaders have responded. Because those, of course, that have responded in art have realised well, actually, I'm going to have, to have to stand and talk into that and, and talk about what it means. And so I really so to me, the theme of the day has been this thing about sensing and actually how do you sense in a time of uncertainty and do it and actually you need to do more of it and you need to be more curious. And I was on a, I was on a session this morning. So I was facilitating a session this morning with a whole bunch of industry people from the customer contact industry, the tech industry. And one of the things that they were saying that builds on this thing about things being stripped away. Really interesting about some of the points being made about EQ rather than IQ People have been talking about the emergence of hybrid roles on exec teams that now the ft person needs to do hr the cio needs to understand tech so you know that thing about t-shaped execs you know t-shaped people you don't have one narrow skill you have to develop a range of skills and the thing that they've said is and one of the reasons why they've had to do that is because they've it's they've had to have more direct um all forum all staff calls online and so actually it's been partly for them some of these organizations covid has been a period of democratization where more staff have had a chance to talk directly to the key leaders in the business and for them to be seen, to be visible and back to that theater. They've had a lot of the props taken away from them and they've had to stand there and come up with good answers around some of those things. So my big takeout, I think, is that actually, first of all, if you didn't understand the importance of humility before the pandemic, um, I think you might have been forced upon you. And if you haven't noticed you need it yet, then you're probably really in trouble as a leader. And then the next thing is actually, I mean, really. And then the next thing is actually to your point, Matt, and you pushed us quite hard. I think on some really important things around to what extent should um, should we be calling issues? Should we be sh- trying to be moving into the future, be decisive? I think the job of leadership right now is to be as decisive as you can be. But you've got to talk about that dialogue. That sensing conversation that we might not know, and that we can keep. We're going to keep trialing, testing, piloting, whilst moving as fast as we can. Because in my experience, it's the organisations that have done that that are really taking their people with them, and back to what Celia said. Then tolerate a failure, tolerate. Oh, we got that short-term call wrong. Let's look again. Um, so I just note that that was my way of trying to connect some of the things that I'd heard together through the afternoon. I, I
0: think some some great observations there, John, and I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll listen back and absorb those in more detail. I think that was that was a great summary of of, of the key themes that have come out of of today's conversation. Um, And I think, you know, I think for me, my, my overriding sense is that the, the mood is, is, is a positive one. So I think it's been a, it's been a liberating rather than crippling experience in many ways, but actually, you know, it's, it may, it may be too early to call things and actually we may just need to be a bit more comfortable with uncertainty for, for a bit longer, but, but when we do envision, envision the future, when we do start planning for the future, that actually that's, that's not just about sitting and gazing into blue sky, that actually we need to take some quite structured and thoughtful approaches to that um, and, and have a clear sense of what our priorities are. And that that will require leadership courage. That's, you know, there isn't a blueprint for that. Um, and the other thing that's come through to me from today's conversation is just how important it is to recognize individuality and the human nature of what we've been through. And yeah, you know, that um, suggested earlier on that it's just too, it's wrong to generalize. It's too early to generalize. It's, it's not appropriate to generalize, I think is a, is a really powerful theme that probably we can take into our lives in business and more broadly. So I just wanna say thank you um, to, to, to Nancy and Celia, and kevin and, and John for their contributions and, and and to all of those of you who who've made it a lively discussion and um, I look forward to reading through the chat box in a bit more detail when uh, when we're off screen. but it's really lovely to have got back in the back in the saddle with the events and I think we've we've unearthed some potential topics for the future um as well and I think you know the role of the role of stakeholder against shareholder is key. So look thank you all for taking part. it's great to see you all and um, please keep close to Deborah project and look forward to seeing you again.